Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I asked Oscar Lopez, who reports for The New York Times, to help describe this photograph. It's gone viral in Mexico. The photograph shows a young woman standing on a highway looking out into the darkness. She's wearing a face mask. You can see just the the highway behind her. And it's sort of unclear, you know, why this photo was taken. This photo is not skillfully framed. It's blurry. But it's important because of when it was taken. It's one of the last images we have of this teenager before she went missing. You know what stood out to me about this photo? She's wearing high tops. Yeah. She seems a little like a kid that I went to high school with. Definitely. And I think that's, you know, part of, again, what made this photo kind of haunting and viral is that she does look so young and fragile. What's this woman's name? Her name is Debani. Debani Escobar, right? That's right. Debani Escobar. Debani ended up at the side of the highway after leaving a party. Some friends had called a car for her, but she ditched the cab before she got home. That's when the driver took this snapshot. And it's not really clear why she decided to get out of the car or even why, you know, the driver decided to just kind of leave her there. Or why he decided to take a picture. Right. I mean, that, I think, speaks to the situation we're living in Mexico, where apparently he took the photo to to send to her friends to say, like, you know, when I left her, she was fine. Sort of implying that, you know, in this country, it's very easy for women to go from one minute being fine and the next minute disappearing. The irony of the fact that Dabani disappeared anyway is part of why so many people in Mexico can't stop thinking about this image. When this photo went out there, was Dabani's family still hoping to find her? Absolutely. I think that's why they pushed it out there, because, you know, they, they realized that getting that attention would um, help potentially to find her. And, and they wanted to find her alive. And there's a, a very sort of really odd kind of paradox because, you know, I, I'd been with the family and a, and a group of volunteers kind of going through this, this empty field uh, looking for essentially a dead body. You know, people were poking the ground with sticks trying to see if there was kind of earth that had been recently disturbed. But at the same time, you would ask people, like, do you think she's still alive? And everyone would say yes. And then... You know, I'd gone back to my hotel and was kind of thought work was done for the night. And then we got the the call, the message that a body had been found in the same, almost the same location where we'd been looking that, that same morning. Today on the show, 
the life and death of Dabani Escobar. Her case has prompted outrage, but will it spark change? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Oscar Lopez has been chronicling the troubling rise in femicides in Mexico for the last few years. Thousands of women killed or disappeared for all kinds of troubling reasons. When Dabani's body was found, he made sure to point out in his reporting that her case was connected to all of these other stories. Ten other women have disappeared from her region in the last month alone. But Oscar says there was something singular about Dabani. He thinks it starts with her family. A lot of times when people disappear in Mexico, families are actually a lot less keen to, to draw attention because they're fearful that, you know, drawing attention might implicate their own security. And so there's a lot of fear around these, these sorts of cases. But this family just took it upon themselves to really um, promote the story of her disappearance and, and try and, you know, see if that would help authorities find her. I'm wondering if you can take me through Devani's story from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me more about who she was? Yeah, absolutely. She was 18. She was a law student. Apparently, she was very popular, had a lot of friends. She was gregarious. Very beautiful. She was extremely beautiful. You know, at one point had considered modeling. And I think that's worth mentioning that a lot of the women who disappear are are poor, are indigenous people. And I think that's in part what drove Dabani's story to, to the front of the media's attention. Something that I have found sort of heartbreaking in some ways is that, you know, just a few weeks before she disappeared, she'd actually been to a march for International Women's Day and had marched with with her cousin um, specifically, you know, to protest against domestic violence experienced by women in Mexico. And then just a few weeks later, she herself disappeared. She was living in a relatively prosperous part of Mexico too, right? Monterrey? Yeah, that's right. Monterrey is one of Mexico's wealthiest cities. It's an industrial capital, very much like the the business center of, of Mexico in a lot of ways. She first went missing on April 9th. Can you walk me through what we know about her disappearance? There's still a lot we don't know, but as far as what we've been able to ascertain from what the authorities have said and what the parents told me is that she went to a party on the night of April 8th with some friends. Her mom told me that she had told Dabani, you know, I don't think you should go out tonight. There's been all these disappearances. It's really dangerous. But Dabani said, don't worry, mom. That's just, you know, I'll be fine. And then she went to this party kind of on the outskirts of, of town. She got to the party at probably 1.30 in the morning. And then at around 4, 4.30, her and her friends decide to leave. And eventually her friends put her in a private car to send her home. 
and there's video that you can see her getting into this white car. But then shortly after, she gets out of the car on this highway. Security camera tape shows how Dabani walked onto the grounds of a nearby motel. In some of the footage, you can see her running, though the camera doesn't capture anyone chasing her. And you can sort of see her walking around the grounds of this motel through the video camera from this restaurant. And then the last image of her is at close to five in the morning, and then she's not seen again. And this motel is where her body was found? That's correct. Her body was found in an abandoned water tank almost two weeks after she disappeared. Apparently, investigators had searched this same motel four separate times and didn't find her. And it was only when workers at the motel complained of a gas or smell that it tipped authorities off about her location in in the cistern. Yeah, that detail from your reporting that authorities had searched already four times at the same location Mm -hmm. stood out to me. And I wondered what you made of it. Like, did the authorities do their job in this case? Well, that's one of the biggest questions, I think. They've been at the forefront of the case because it did get so much media attention. But throughout, there's been questions about whether what they were doing was really effective. The head of the National Search Commission, which is an agency here, a government agency in Mexico that was set up to help people find missing loved ones. In radio interviews, she discussed sort of some of the blunders or missteps that she identified from the prosecutor's office that, again, is the one in charge of of the search process. Some of the more shocking revelations from the the National Search Commissioner was that the parents of Dabani weren't informed by the prosecutor's office that, that the body had been found. Oh, no. And that they were just sort of finding out this information on the news. And she actually said that she was with them, you know, talking to them when all this information started coming out. You've noted, though, that the week before Damani was found, authorities were still saying disappearances like hers were, quote unquote, voluntary. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know what voluntary meant in this context. Yeah, that's been something that women's rights activists have continually drawn attention to is the fact that authorities often minimize or even try and implicate women in their own disappearances, that there was just sort of angry teenagers kind of leaving home or running away. There are certainly cases of women, young girls running away who do later turn up. um, and, And that's important to acknowledge. But even if women young women, young teenagers are running away from home, and that's how a lot of them end up missing. You have to kind of ask, what situations are they living in at home that prompts them to actually run away and, and, you know, lose contact with their parents? You know, you have to think about situations of domestic violence and family abuse that are so bad that young women are are forced to leave their home. And I think that's something that is rarely acknowledged by, by authorities. Yes, Dabani's case has been shocking, and, and so have the other ones of recent disappearances, but it's definitely something that's been going on for years, even in, in Monterey. You talked to one family who said that their relative went missing, and it took authorities two weeks 
to even come to their house. And that woman is, is still missing, and that was this year. But there were other cases of disappearances that happened in previous years that also seemed to me equally to demonstrate kind of missteps or negligence or inefficiency from authorities. You know, one woman whose daughter went missing in 2015, the police did come to her house quite soon after she reported her daughter missing and, and, and questioned her. But it took forensic experts a, a year to come to her house and look through her daughter's room, you know, to see if there was some kind of evidence that could lead to her disappearance. A year. And a year. And at one point, authorities seemed to imply that part of the reason she disappeared was because she had tattoos. And tattoos were bad? Yeah, because they kind of suggest she was maybe like rebellious or something. Again, kind of playing into this narrative of, of women being the protagonists of their own disappearance. The thing that really stands out to me when I think about these cases is that Mexico has been called out for disappearances like these for years. Like the UN even wrote an entire report about the thousands of people, many of the men actually, who've gone missing in Mexico. 95,000 cases of disappearances. Yeah, it's, it's a shocking epidemic. That UN report that you mentioned, which, which called on Mexico to, to tackle the crisis, was based on a trip that the United Nations Committee for Enforced Disappearances took in, in November last year. But now the numbers have actually ticked up to 99,000. So we're getting close to 100,000 people that are missing or disappeared in the country. In your story, you called Mexico an increasingly lawless nation, which struck me as a really serious claim. Yeah, it was it was a, a phrase that came to mind when I was reporting this story. And it was it was something I considered deeply, you know, because I, I am Mexican and I, I don't necessarily want to play into narratives of Mexico being this wild country that's wracked by violence. And that's all it is, because I think Mexico is is an incredible place. And I, I'm so proud and happy to live here for so many reasons. But kind of reporting this story and talking to these families you know, according to the UN, only 36 cases out of the almost 100,000 disappearances ended in convictions. That's not even a fraction. That's not even a fraction. And it becomes harder and harder to see how or where the law is being applied in Mexico. Back after a break. Something I remembered when I heard Dabani's story is that a couple years back, Mexico saw a tremendous protest movement bubble up. Like women around the country were taken to the streets. They were really angry that they felt unsafe. They wanted the government to take on femicide is what they called it. And I just wonder if you can put me back in that moment and explain what happened then and how it connects to Dibani and the response to her story now. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the vital context here. There is a very emboldened feminist movement in Mexico that for the last few years has been calling out this incredible violence against women. And increasingly, they've, they've taken to the streets in, in massive protest marches. And one of the biggest was, as you mentioned, in 2020, tens of thousands of women marched through Mexico City 
on International Women's Day and in cities across the country. And increasingly, the marches have turned somewhat violent, in some senses justified by women who are so sick and tired of, of not feeling safe, not being able to go out at night. And they've often defaced monuments or smashed uh, windows in a kind of expression of this, this incredible rage. They even took over a federal building back in 2020, and they said they were going to make it into a shelter for victims of violence. That's right. And they took portraits of past presidents and defaced them, drew on them. Another important protest moment was in 2020, there was a national strike where tens of thousands of women actually stayed home from work to kind of draw attention to the fact that, you know, women make up half the workforce, but aren't remunerated equally to their male colleagues. And so there's been a lot of different expressions, moments of, of national protests in the women's movement and also calling on, on the right to healthcare and, and abortion specifically. And that's become a really important issue of the feminist movement. And just last year, you know, the Supreme Court decriminalized abortion in Mexico, which was a huge achievement for, for the women's movement, which had been calling for this right for years, if not decades. Yeah. I mean, the quotes from the activists that I remember reading in 2019 and 2020, they were so fierce. They were like, you know, this is our feminist spring and we won't stop until we get justice. You know, this has only begun. But it's hard not to look at Dabani's death and feel like nothing has changed. But I think the fact that Dabani's case provoked such national outrage is testament to the fact that the women's movement has kept this issue at the center of the country's discourse for the last several years. And so they've built up this kind of awareness in the country about this issue. But the women are still dying and going missing. Yes, and there's no denying that. And, and I think that that is still a huge battle that is far from being won. But what was kind of, in some ways inspiring in the middle of the of the horrific discovery of, of Debani's body was that, you know, the, the next day women took to the streets of Monterrey. Uh, there was hundreds, if not, you know, a thousand or more women who shut down rush hour traffic in Monterrey. And Monterrey is a conservative city, not like the liberal bastion of Mexico City. And, and you know, to see women shut down traffic, I talked to women who, who were inspired to march for the first time because of what had happened to Devani. And there was also protests in Mexico City, in Guadalajara, in Puebla. It, it's kind of inspired this, this national movement where women are saying enough is enough. And I think that's kind of the, the counterbalance. Even though, as you say, like it's still a national, a national crisis is of this violence against women. And there's, there's, while there's an awareness, I don't think there's been a cultural or institutional shift to really confront the scourge of violence. And, and so that's, I think, the next step. One of the most heartbreaking moments you reported on was Dabani's funeral. I'm wondering if you can tell me what that experience was like. Yeah, that was really, really tough. You know, I've, I've reported on a lot of difficult situations, but this was definitely one of the, one of the toughest. So Dubani's body was driven out of Monterrey three hours south to a, a town called Galeana, which is where her mother uh, grew up and where they would go, you know, sometimes on, on holiday. 
And um, arriving in the town, there was people lining the streets um, with balloon, white balloons with Debani's name written on them or signs with justice for Debani. And it, it sounds crazy, but almost the moment we walked into the cemetery, this sort of cold wind picked up, gray storm clouds rolled overhead, thunder started rumbling, and it just became this incredible, intense, eerie moment um, to feel like the whole world had suddenly turned kind of cold and gray. The mourners kind of gathered around the grave. Her coffin was lowered into the grave and then cement was poured on top. Then dozens of flowers were, were piled on top and that was, that was it. You said the women in the crowd were singing as all this happened. So many of them had these kind of phrases that were, you know, obviously applicable to the, the Catholic tradition, but kind of had these echoes of, seemed to relate to Tabani's story of like, your eyes are closed now, God will embrace you. And it was just this incredibly charged atmosphere that was so haunting. And the, the father before her body was laid into the ground, gave a speech talking about how his family was just destroyed. You know, this is his only child, his only daughter being laid into the ground. And it was one of the, the hardest things I've had to witness in a long time. As horrible as this scene was, Oscar couldn't help but think about the other families he'd spoken with as he reported Dabani's story. Even though her family's heartbroken, there are families for whom even a funeral would be a kind of luxury. They at least have the certainty of knowing that that they're where their daughter's body is and they have a place to go and, and mourn her. And so many thousands of families in Mexico don't have even that, you know, tiny privilege of being able to have that sense of closure because their missing loved ones have, have vanished, essentially, and they're, all they have are their questions. I think in Dabani's case, the family just still wants to know what happened between, you know, that video where we can see her in the motel and then her body ending up in this in this underground water tank. Did did she fall? Was someone chasing her? There's just so many questions that are still unanswered and I think they just wanna wanna get to the bottom of, of what really happened to their daughter. Oscar Lopez, I'm really, really grateful for your reporting. Thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. It's been great talking to you. Oscar Lopez is a reporter for The New York Times. He's based in Mexico City. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Carmel Del Shad, Mary Wilson, and Elena Schwartz. We're getting a ton of help these days from Sam Kim and Anna Rubinova. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. And I'm Mary Harris. We're going to be back in this feed tomorrow. I'll talk to you then.